0: Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as we continue both through 1 Corinthians 14 together as a chapter as well as kind of picking up here with a, I guess you might say, third installment of a brief series we're doing here, particularly addressing the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, as he would work among the gatherings of God's people, that is the times particularly when we come together as the church, When we have meetings, assembly times like this, what does it look like biblically? What should it be like when the Holy Spirit is genuinely manifesting his ministry among us? How does he work among us collectively? We talked about how, really, chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians described to us particularly uh, things that pertain to when you come together times when the church assembles together we see that repeated refrain in these three or excuse me four chapters together regarding when we come together as the church and an instruction in regards to what that should look like and it seems particularly that Paul was addressing these things because the Corinthian church though they had a great strength in that they were seeking to be very open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to the gifts of the Spirit being in operation amongst them, and that's a wonderful thing, that's a very healthy thing. It seems that they also had gotten a little bit disorderly and were in some ways being open to things and a little bit carried away, that at times were going to uh, excess, maybe hyperemotionalism at times, the meetings getting a little bit disorderly and disruptive and chaotic, which were kind of beginning to become a distraction and taking the focus off of the Lord at times, and at times perhaps allowing things that maybe were of the human. Spirit, not genuinely of the Holy Spirit. So Paul writes some corrective guidance in these chapters, particularly emphasizing how the Spirit does work among us, what is legitimate, uh, really giving the emphasis that love should be the purpose, that we should want to honor Jesus, and we should want to mutually build each other up and strengthen one another spiritually when we come together, and that there is a distinction between times of private and personal worship and times when we gather for public, corporate worship, when we come together as a group collectively in an assembly. Uh, Thus far, we've journeyed down as far as verse 33 together last time. This evening we'll pick up in verse 34, make our way down through the remainder of the chapter. In fact, let me just read from verse 34 down through verse 40. This is what we're going to wrap up looking at together tonight. He says, verse 34, "'Let your women keep silent in the churches.'" For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Or did the word of God, Paul asks, come originally from you? Or was it to you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual... Let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now, Again, remember the context, particularly as we come now into verse 34, the last section of this chapter here, the context we know is God's desire for order, to be included in the times of public worship, that in order to have a healthy worship meeting, a healthy, fruitful gathering spiritually when we come together at times as the church, that order, by design, is necessary. Uh, Giving, Paul has in this chapter thus far, spiritual guidelines, and even Paul gave some parameters we saw last time for congregational meetings, ways that they were to allow prophecy and the gifts of the spirit to be at work but ways that they were also to regulate that with the authority of God to make sure that things kept in balance so that the meeting remained as we've talked about glorifying to Jesus "...that it remained edifying and beneficial for all those attending, not just one person, but the whole collective body that's assembled, and that the meeting remained focused on the Lord, that there wasn't fleshly things taking place or ways in which attention was being drawn away from the Lord and attention was being brought upon a particular person." who was sort of garnering attention to themselves, whether consciously or unconsciously, and that a meeting led by the Holy Spirit would never become and should never become disorderly or chaotic that when the Spirit of God moves among the people of God, things should not need to become disorderly. It doesn't mean things need to become out of control. In fact, particularly if you look in verse 32 and 33, where we left off last time, because again, context is important. Paul had just said, verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, he's saying that when the Holy Spirit moves upon a person, whether to speak a prophetic word to pray, to uh, pray and speak in tongues, whatever. He's saying the spirit of the prophet is subject, that is, under the control of the one who is speaking. The idea is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, uh, we never lose control. There's not this, you know, irresistible urge that cannot be stopped or quenched to just, well, I just had to say that, or I just had to behave that way, or I had to do that. The Bible's saying, no, that's not true. Paul even says to the Galatians regarding the fruit of the Spirit that part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So when the Spirit of God is moving upon us, we do still have control. That is, we have control over when we speak and when we're silent. We do have control over whether we choose to speak or we choose to refrain from speaking if perhaps it's not appropriate in that given moment. We do have the ability to refrain from speaking any further. If we have been speaking, we have the ability to cease speaking. Uh, Again, whether that is someone like me giving a teaching to say, well, well, I'm sorry it went an hour and a half. I just had a lot of things the Lord was telling me to share. Well, you know, the Bible would say that's not loving. You know, when I was a teacher earlier on, I kind of had more of that perspective of, hey, the Lord's giving me things to share. I'm just going to keep sharing. And, And ultimately, the Lord said, well, that's rude. That's not loving, and love is patient and kind, and and it's not rude. And sometimes it's rude to sit there and force people to listen to you longer than they're able to listen to you, whether you want to speak or not. And see, the spirit of the prophet should be subject to the prophet. And in the same way, it doesn't mean that we should ever behave in a way that's disorderly. He says, verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. In other words, God is never going to originate chaos something that's disruptive. God's never going to originate uh, or cause in a person them to behave in a way that's distracting in a meeting or makes other people feel awkward or uncomfortable because it just kind of disrupts the harmony of what God's doing in the orderly flow of the meeting as a God of order. He says, no, God's nature is to be a God of peace, of tranquility, of order and harmony. He's going to say at the end of the chapter, all things to be done decently and in order. Now, The most recent context of what we looked at as we closed out last time was instruction about judging and evaluating prophecy. And this becomes important as we go into verse 34. That he was talking about when prophets speak or a prophetic word is given that others should judge, he was giving instruction about evaluating prophecy in a gathering to determine if what was being said, remember, was genuinely of the Holy Spirit that if someone gives a prophetic word, it shouldn't just be taken at face value. There should be discretion and and discernment and deciding, is that credible? Is that a valid word from the Lord? Does it line up with scripture? Does it line up with 1 Corinthians 14, 3, edification, exhortation, or comfort? Uh, Is it sound doctrinally? Perhaps even the need, if that would arise in a meeting, to even maybe then give instruction as a follow-up to a prophetic word. Or maybe if what is spoken is errant, doctrinally, or the word given by a prophet, a a message or a teaching, is is not in alignment with, with sound doctrine, then there may be a need to give correction congregationally or to give further understanding or instruction. Now, it's with that context as a backdrop. Paul then goes on, verse 34, with that context to say, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Now, let me begin by clarifying what this does not mean. What this does not teach or indicate in light of Scripture as a whole is this is not a blanket prohibition that women cannot speak in the church assembly. That's ludicrous. And it's not even consistent with the word of God as whole. Well. It is not implying that a woman is prohibited from speaking in any way verbally to engage in a corporate meeting or to participate in a gathering of worship. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11, the very same book in the Bible and letter that we're studying here, Paul wrote back in chapter 11 there that women were permitted to pray and prophesy within the church. Paul gave clarity in chapter 11, assuming and assuring that it was totally acceptable for a woman to pray and prophesy in church meetings. What Paul gave instruction there in 1 Corinthians 11 about was that women were free to pray in the church. They were free to to share a prophetic word from the Lord. Yet in chapter 11, Paul says they must do this under proper authority that it was to be done in a way under the covering of the male authority that God set up by design the covering of one's husband the covering of the spiritual leadership the male leadership in the church that women are given freedom to speak and participate verbally in gatherings of worship and church meetings but it was to be done in a orderly manner it wasn't to be done in a disorderly way that was outside of God's design so we know that verse 34 cannot be a blanket prohibition that when a woman steps through the doors of the church, she has to just be quiet, and then when she steps back out the door, she can talk again, or that she can't participate in a prayer meeting, or she can't share a word from the Lord if she feels God's impressing something upon her heart. That, that is not what is being conveyed there. Let's consider what is being conveyed. In light of the context, for example, in verse 34, notice he says, let your women keep silent. The term means to use restraint. And the idea there is to to consciously, as he says in verse 32, the spirit of prophet is subject to the prophet. That that the woman is to use restraint and self-control in a particular area of speaking is what I believe is being referred to. And we'll talk about that. And notice he says, this is only within the church. That is within the context of the corporate gathering, of the public assembly when the church comes together for worship times. He says, for they are not permitted, the idea is they're not given authority or approval from God's throne, to speak. The word speak there he uses is the Greek word leleo, which is a term that means to utter words in order to declare one's thoughts or to give one's ideas upon a matter. It was often used, that term Laleo, to uh, describe debating or proving that one knows what is right. So the indication there, Laleo, is that not to speak, that the woman is not to speak within the context of the church gathering in an authoritative sense. That she is declaring what is to be deemed as right that she is presenting or debating or proving by sharing her thoughts on a matter scripturally, doctrinally, spiritually, what is to be right, he says, but rather within the church, he says, the woman should be submissive, the idea again, submissive under the authority of those who are to be in charge and who are ruling. Again, remember the context, as I just said, it's evaluating and judging spiritual credibility Of prophetic words, whether they were of the Holy Spirit or not in a gathering. The implication here is the role of dealing with those things, judging prophecies, making sure things are doctrinally sound. That was not the role for the woman in the church, but is intended to be the role for the man. That by God's design and what God's intended in that context, that women were to respectfully be submissive and to restrain themselves from speaking in that sense and to allow either A, their husbands, or B, the male leadership within the church make those kind of determinations. To allow them to be the ones to carry the responsibility and the role to make those doctrinal determinations. Was that prophecy accurate? Was it not accurate? That the woman was to refrain from giving input on that matter and to allow that to be the role of the men to handle that, not speaking in an authoritative sense, you know what, I need to get up and address the congregation because I don't think what he said was sound. That that wasn't to be the role of the woman that that was to be the role of the man, because God regulated that role to the man, and it wasn't to be the woman who was giving such instruction, that was the role of the males in the church, who were supposed to be, by God's design, spiritual leaders in their homes, and in the body of Christ, in this thing we call the church. Now, it's in that manner, Paul, seeking to give proper order in church meetings, says what he does there in verse 34, let your women therefore keep silent in the churches, Not to be permitted to speak, but they're to be submissive, as the law says. Now, we find similar instruction with similar terms found there in verse 34 in another complementary passage. In fact, again, all the time, remember, we should always use Scripture to interpret Scripture. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. It's not necessarily Warren Wiersbe or Spurgeon or, or anybody else. I love commentaries. But the best commentary on the Bible is always the Bible. And there should always be consistency. And one passage illuminates another passage. Now, we find as we look at this difficult verse here, in verse 34 and 35, another section where I think gives further illumination to reinforce what is and what is not trying to be said here by Paul the Apostle. Turn with me, if you would, hold your finger here, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is one of Paul's what we call pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Paul writes these letters particularly to pastors, to proteges, men he was mentoring in the ministry who were in pastoral ministry, church leadership, so we get a lot of good instruction regarding that. In first, in fact, notice 1st Timothy 3, look down with me in verse 14 and 15. Very key for 1st Timothy. Here's the 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 telling truth of what this particular letter is about. Paul says, verse Timothy 3, 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I'm writing so that you may, look at this, know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. You couldn't get more clear there in a letter in the bible about what the particular letter is about often we try and give themes to different letters and books of the bible you can't get more specific than that paul right there says this is the very reason timothy i'm writing this particular letter to you i'm writing this particular letter because if i can't get there to instruct you he says i want you to know how you're to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the pillar and ground of truth. I'm writing this letter particularly to give instruction so that you and the congregation there in Ephesus know what does it look like to conduct yourselves in an orderly, proper operation among the church, in the house of God. He's giving instruction particularly regarding that. Now go back one chapter to chapter 2 with that understanding of what the letter's about. 1 Timothy chapter 2 After speaking about that he wants men to be in prayer and so on and so forth, look down in verse 11 and look at the very similar language we just saw in 1 Corinthians 14 about orderly worship gatherings when the church comes together. He says, verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence, sounds familiar, with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So uh, take notice here. He says, verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Again, similar terms and same ideas from First Corinthians chapter 14, that in the corporate church gathering, how do we conduct ourselves in the house of God? Again, it's God's house. So if it's God's house, God gets to make the rules, Right. In my house, somebody doesn't come in and determine the rules for my house. It's my house, right? So the church is God's house. So it's God's prerogative to say, in my house, these are the parameters. These are the boundaries. This is the way I want things to function. So in God's house, God's design, he says, is that the woman would learn peaceably and quietly under the recognition of established authority using restraint. And in light of that, that's why he then says, verse 12, and this is a clear Biblical prohibition He says I do not permit a woman to teach Didasco is the word It's the term used in the New Testament For teaching doctrine Didasco I do not permit a woman to teach Doctrine, the idea is Or to have authority over a man But to be in silence Now you can't get more clear there Regarding understanding Of God's order Within the functions and operations Of the local church very clear, the Bible is just laying this out here, that God's design in church gatherings and congregational worship, when both men and women are all present together in the General Assembly, is that a woman is not to be in a teaching or a speaking role in an authoritative sense, over the congregation generally, over the men and the women generally. That it is not God's design. That role of giving doctrine and spiritual instruction is exclusively reserved for men. God said that. I didn't make that up. It's not a chauvinistic idea. It's a divine idea. It's divine order. It's something that God designed knowing what was best and for his blood church, how he intended that it would be something reserved for the males to do. A woman is also not to have, he says authority over a man, again, the idea being in a congregational setting, that the governing role of authority, uh, leading a congregation, the spiritual office of what we would often call a pastor or an elder or an overseer, that that role is intended to be exclusively for males within the body of Christ. The idea there, very simply, is what God is saying is by design, the pulpit ministry over the congregation generally teaching doctrine and spiritual instruction is not to be something that a woman is leading. It is to be men who are in that function and role. The Bible says there are not to be women in pastoral, elder, overseer roles providing governance and leadership and oversight of the local church. That's exclusively reserved for males by God's design. Again, it's his church, it's his family. Now, he gives reasoning for that in verse 13. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So take notice not a cultural thing because some people try and say well that was a cultural thing listen God says it wasn't a cultural thing it's a creation thing because God says look here's the, here's the design I don't permit a woman to be in the doctrinal teaching role over the assembly I don't permit a woman to have authority governance pastorally like an elder over men he says for Adam was formed first then Eve what does God use as reasoning God uses creation creation The order of creation. He takes it all the way back to creation and says, because it's just a divine order. has nothing to do, listen, with inferiority, superiority, who knows the Bible better, who's more spiritual. has nothing to do with that. It has to do with God created a design. He's a God of order, a God of authority and design, and he laid out things, and he determined, as an all-knowing God, what would be best collectively, for the church congregationally. What would be most healthy? What would be most safe for the function of the church? He then adds verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So notice the flow of thought there. As he uses, again, reasoning for this under the Spirit's direction, Paul says, remember, it was Eve that was deceived or tricked by the serpent, But what does that tell us? It also tells us the unspoken. Eve was deceived, Adam knowingly and deliberately rebelled. That's why throughout the New Testament, Adam is blamed for the fall of the world, not Eve. Because Eve was deceived, Adam deliberately, knowingly rebelled because God gave him the command, you may eat of all the trees of the garden For the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And the headship and the authority and that initial command of God was given to Adam. Adam knew it. And and Adam knowingly, deliberately chose to just rebel against God. And so he's the one that brought down all of humanity and, and plunged the world into sin and death and is the one held liable for that. Yet, what's being said here, as is this again pertains contextually to congregational setting, the woman not being a pastor, a teacher in the pulpit, he's saying because she was deceived by the devil, by the serpent. I think what God is trying to remind us here of Eve's great longing and passion for deeper spirituality is what made her vulnerable to the devil's deception. If you look back in that scene in the Garden of Eden, what happens? He comes to Eve and he says to her, you can be like God. Your eyes can be opened. When he came to the woman, he didn't deceive her by saying, hey, try a little sip of this, baby. Take a little snort of that. Or, you know, why don't you go look at these filthy images? Because that wouldn't have worked. But what did work, the devil knew, was to appeal for the woman's yearning and longing in her feminine nature to want to be more spiritual, to experience deeper things spiritually. And so the devil says, look, you can, you can be more spiritual. Would you like to be more spiritual? And it's interesting, that was how he deceived the woman. He appealed to this good longing within her in her nature and temperament, to want to be more spiritual, to be deeper into the things of the spirit and so forth, and that was what he used to actually manipulate that aspect of her sensitive nature to misguide her spiritually and get her off track and deceive her. And ultimately, what happened? Why was the devil able to deceive Eve? Well, because, if you think of it, because she was not functioning under the authority and the covering of her husband. Now, where Adam was, I don't know. He was probably out picking fruit or watching the NFL. or I mean, he, he was absent and uninvolved. So, in my, my input, he was just as guilty or more guilty because why wasn't he there saying, Dear, don't do that. Don't dialogue with the devil. Why wasn't he there speaking the truth? What's Adam? Adam's problem is Adam's passive. He's uninvolved, and he's more interested in perhaps chasing his career and increasing his crops then he is the spiritual welfare of his own family. And so here's Eve, she's left vulnerable, and she finds herself functioning independently, then she actually takes over the lead spiritually, and she says, here Adam, try this. And Adam deliberately chooses to disobey. And what happens? A major shipwreck spiritually. How did a major shipwreck happen spiritually? the woman usurped the role of spiritual authority in the Garden of Eden and humanity was shipwrecked spiritually. I think God's got a pretty good point why he laid out the parameters the way that he did. What God is certainly trying to remind us, look, women by nature, and I'm married to one, been married to one for 24 plus years and I'm raising three more that are young adults. Women by nature, I'll tell you this, I'm convinced are more sensitive spiritually than men. I think generally. Women are very sensitive, they're passionate, they're very tender, and because of that, nature and temperament, they're very, very sensitive to the things of the spirit, but that also see can be a, a vulnerability that can be more easily manipulated satanically. And God understands that. Men by nature let's be honest guys, we tend to be a little bit more dull. We're logical. We tend to, at times, just kind of be less passionate. I wish the men had some of the passion spiritually that I see women have. I wish men had some of the hunger and longing and sensitivity spiritually, and and that can be a real problem for men, but see, it also can be a safeguard, because as it pertains to things like doctrine and and making decisions and guiding and leading, that actually can be a safe thing, because sometimes it helps a man be a little bit more, and he just stays steady. And he stays stable, and he's not as easily yanked off track. And so God, again, in his great wisdom, wanting steadiness and stability as a crucial thing pertaining to church function, says, for teaching of doctrine and governance and guidance in the church, this is why I've reserved this for the males. And this is why God says I prohibit a woman from functioning in that role. Now listen, certainly God is not forbidding women to teach altogether. The Bible's very, very clear. Timothy's mother and grandmother did what? Taught him the word of God. Timothy would have never became the godly young man he was if he didn't have a mother investing in him the way he did, right? Titus chapter 2 says that older women should be teaching younger women. That is, teaching younger women, discipling them, teaching women's Bible studies, again, investing the word of God, teaching the word of God to younger women, whether younger chronologically or just less mature spiritually. In the book of Acts, we see Aquila and Priscilla as a husband and a wife, discipling someone to help out Apollo. So the Bible encourages women to teach children, to disciple one-on-one, to teach women's Bible studies and so forth. The Bible just very clearly prohibits women taking this role in a congregational setting of being in a pulpit or being in a pastoral overseer type role. It's very clear. And listen, I don't care what culture is doing or what other churches are saying. I don't want to be politically accurate. I want to be biblically accurate. God knows what He's doing. By God's design, we should honor God's design as we do every other area of His Word and not falsely interpret something because our own feelings are confused. We should say, God, you just know what's best. You're sovereign, you're wise. And we trust you with your design and to function. Listen, how does this all pertain? Because to function outside of that design is to function out of order spiritually. And look, I apologize that some men don't step forward to the plate and fulfill the God given callings that they have. But that is never an excuse to step outside of God's design in a corporate church assembly and function out of order. It's never a good thing for us, therefore, to do that. Now, come back to 1 Corinthians 14 as we look at these verses together here. Again, I think that begins with some more clarity and light to understand the context of what Paul is or isn't saying when he said there that the woman was within that church setting to be silent and to keep under the authority in a submissive way that God had intended Then verse 35, he goes on to say, and if they, that is the woman, want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it's shameful for women to speak in the church. And here, Paul, in verse 35, I think, seems to be addressing an issue of just disruption and distraction that was happening during the worship meetings. Again, many believe that as in some of the synagogues and some settings, even as they, that the men and the women potentially sitting on opposite sides of the room. That's very possible. And so here's, you know, a teaching being given or a prophetic word or things that are happening in the Corinthian church. And some of the women, as well as some of the men are saying, I don't understand what in the world is he talking about? Or I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I don't know if that's really, sounds like it's something of the Lord. So wanting to get clarity, they were constantly asking, and perhaps there were interruptions and, you know, you know, hey, Frank, what do you think about this guy? And, and, and leaning across the aisle, and so they're asking questions. I mean, I don't know if I agree with this. And so there's just this kind of disruptive thing in the meeting creating an unhealthy distraction in shameful ways as subjects are being brought up publicly that probably shouldn't be brought up publicly because it's making it now awkward in the meeting there in Corinth or questions being asked, trying to understand. And and it's just taking attention off the Lord, and it's not considerate behavior. So that's why Paul says there, look, that's disruptive. God's church should have order and, and shouldn't be disruptive and distracting. So he says if they want to learn something, nothing wrong with that. It's good they desire to understand. But he says let them ask their husbands at home, that is outside of the meeting of the worship gathering, he says, because it's shameful to be speaking in such disruptive ways in the church. That is, it just wasn't appropriate etiquette. It was just disruptive. So he says the better way to do that, he gives some guidance, again, another restraint, is he says, just wait to address it at home. Just wait till you get home and then say, honey, you know, what did you think about today when he said that in the sermon? Or, or what do you think, you know, about that person that gave a word that was supposed to be, do you think that was really from the Lord and, and just able to dialogue about it at home in a loving way to not interrupt the gathering. And I do like this thought of, throughout 1 Corinthians 14, an encouragement towards just common courtesy and etiquette in the worship meeting. Hey, don't be shouting across the room or talking to the person next to you. I can't tell you how much I see that from the pulpit at times. And it's almost an astonishing thing to me, the lack of etiquette sometimes even believers have within the house of the Lord. And I just recently did a a chapel service for an elementary school, and and those kids had really good etiquette for elementary kids. I thought, boy, I wish sometimes the body of Christ had that kind of etiquette in a worship gathering. They didn't get up. They didn't walk around. They didn't distract people. They weren't chatting and laughing and goofing. They they were actually being courteous. Maybe their teachers were threatening them. I don't know, but (laughs) I was impressed for elementary kids. But again, just this idea of, again, love. We don't want to be disruptive. We don't want to be chaotic. I do love the fact that verse 35, Paul also implies something when he says, let them ask their own husbands at home. To me, that implies that men should be able to help their wives spiritually. He wouldn't say let them ask their husbands at home if Paul didn't intend that men should be able to help their wives process spiritual things. We should take the responsibility. We should be able, if our wife says, "Honey, I don't understand this," or can you to, to say, you know what? Hey, well, let let me help you with that. Let's look at what the Bible says together. The idea is that men should be competent to be able to help their wives at home if they have spiritual questions or want to understand things. He then, I think, Paul understand knowing, just like perhaps even maybe those who hear these things as they, Paul's knowing. I am probably going to get some pushback for what I've been saying in this chapter. Paul's probably thinking, I expect a little bit of confrontation, and especially now that I've just said verse 34 and 35, I'm waiting for pushback. So that's probably why Paul says verse 36, or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? The idea is Paul's saying, just let me make it simple, Paul's saying, Can I ask a question? He's asking the the Corinthians who may be pushing back, not liking what he said. He said, let's consider this. He said, did you author and write the word of God? Or did you receive the word of God to obey it? Are you the authority over the word of God? Or is the authority of the word of God over you, Paul's asking which is it, he's saying, are, are you the ones, only ones who've been told these things, or is this a universal instruction? The idea is, Paul's saying, they were not the authority on spiritual matters. And listen, brothers and sisters, no matter how well we know our Bibles or how spiritually mature we think we are, we are never the authority on spiritual matters. We should always have a teachable attitude, a receptive heart, and particularly as it pertains to what does God's word really say if i genuinely and sincerely come to a text and i exegete it and i and i take the context and i interpret it accurately what is the text really saying whether i like what it says or not whether it makes or whether it lines up with maybe what i always thought or believed maybe my prior spiritual convictions we should always say no what does the text really say that i have a teachable heart i'm willing to be corrected by the word of god and submit to god's design and operate in god's order because that's going to keep me from quenching the spirit and being open to what the holy spirit wants he goes on verse 37 saying if anyone thinks himself with the same mindset thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual let him acknowledge paul says that the things which i write to you are the commandments of the Lord. That's pretty bold, but Paul was accurate because he was laying out apostolic doctrine. This became scripture. And Paul had a sense that this was something the Holy Spirit was giving to them. So Paul says, if anybody thinks that they're spiritual, he says they will prove it by their respect for the word of God. The person who thinks that they are truly a spiritual person, they will show it by recognizing and respecting apostolistic doctrine and teaching of the New Testament. He says, this is how spirituality will genuinely be determined. A person will function subordinate to the authority of Scripture. Look, this is a very important thing we always want to remember, and please hear me in this, spiritual experience should always be subject to the Word of God, never the other way around. We should never say, well, I know this is of God because the experience was so real to me. Whoa. You're saying that the word of God is subject to your personal experience spiritually. That's not a very wise thing. Instead, it should be, I had this experience. Does it line up with the word of God to know if it's legitimate? Or if I had an experience, but yet the word of God said, well, I know the word of God says, but I had this experience and it was so powerful and it made me cry and I felt like liquid love was all over me, man, right? And we just, I just had this incredible experience. Well, look, you can have a spiritual experience. The Bible says there are, you know, false spirits and doctrines of demons, People can have spiritual experiences that are not from the Holy Spirit. And so we never want to make the word of God subject to our experience. We want to always make our experience subject to the word of God. And Paul says that's the the true indication if a person is genuinely a spiritual individual. (laughs) Paul says, verse 38, again, this is kind of this divine sarcasm. Paul says, but if anyone is ignorant... Just let them be ignorant. (laughs) I mean, Paul just says, look, if somebody wants to ignore the word of God and they think they are right and the word of God is not, then he says such a person should just be left to their ignorance. And he says such a person should not be followed and their teaching should just be ignored. Verse 39, therefore, brethren, he says, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Again, we all want to stay open to the move of the Spirit of God, Paul says, look, I'm not opposed. Paul's not diminishing the value of the legitimacy of the gifts of the Spirit still being in operation and still necessary for the church in all generations. Paul says we should desire prophecy. He spoke much of the value and benefits of prophecy in this chapter as we looked at it. And so Paul says, look, we we should desire earnestly to prophesy. We should want, Lord, give me a word. Give me a word from heaven, Lord. Help me to know what's on your heart, to speak a word, to encourage somebody in the church, to comfort somebody that's hurting and going through a hard time, and they just need to be lifted up, and maybe they came to the house of the Lord so downtrodden or depressed. Lord, would you just give me a word so that I can speak something to put some hope and comfort in their heart? Lord, would you give me a word to just exhort somebody to obedience to God and, and to follow the Lord or to step out in faith and to trust the Lord. Lord, would you give me a word? And he says, and look, and, and, and we shouldn't forbid to speak with tongues just because maybe we've seen certain things or maybe we've had certain experiences or, or, or you know, recognized you know, biblical excess or hyperemotionalism, He says, look, that should never lead us to a place where we stop desiring the operation and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our gatherings. He's saying we, we can have balance and, and proper health. He says, verse 40, Notice, let all things be done, but just decently in order. There's the summary verse Paul gives to this whole chapter. We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit out of fear, and we can do that sometimes. Oh, if we let ourselves be open to the Holy Spirit, never know what might happen. Something peculiar might... Let me address that from this perspective. Are you nervous or fearful that if you just let God the Father take complete control, something weird's going to happen? Do people ever go, you know, if you just fully surrender to Jesus, the Son of God, something really weird might happen in your life. You might bark like a dog or do something odd, or I mean I mean you don't want to just surrender to Jesus and give Jesus full control. Something weird might well wait a minute. Last I checked, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three and one, they're all the same. So why should we genuinely be afraid of the Holy Spirit? We shouldn't be. The unfortunate thing is a lot of weird things get done in the name of the Holy Spirit that then, like a reactionary backlash to that, we then fly to another extreme. And I believe this is where cessationist-type theology comes from, where people just want to say, look, none of the gifts are for today. I mean, they all ceased with the early church. And and I believe a, a good part of that is an overreaction out of fear and concern of excess that's happened. And I don't think that's healthy. There's balance. There's balance. We want to be open fully and completely to the Holy Spirit and His ministry. That's important. We need the life and the power of the Spirit. My goodness, we need the life. I need the life and power of the Spirit. Maybe you don't. I need the life and the power of the Spirit. I need sometimes for the Holy Spirit to move in a powerful, wonderful, personal way that I might hear something from God or receive something that I need from the Lord. But notice he says, yet we should let all things be done being open. But he says, but they're to be done decently and in order. So we want to stay open. But he says, what's of the spirit should be characterized by being done. Notice two words, decently. That word means gracefully or harmoniously. And in order, which means by arrangement and not just sporadically. Or by order means in the proper time, at the appropriate time, that it's not disorderly or disrupted, but it just seems like, wow, well, that fit right there. That just seemed appropriate. It didn't seem out of line or chaotic. It just seemed very appropriate. It was the right timing for that because the Holy Spirit is leading that as God is a God of order. So we want to be open to all things, but he's saying when the Holy Spirit is moving, things should be happening in a way where it's just like beautiful and gracious in a meeting. And it just just is so harmonious, it just, it flows with this beautiful harmony with just what God is doing in that particular meeting, and it's just very harmonious, and it just complements in this beautiful way exactly what was going on. And he says that it would happen if it's of the Spirit in a way that it just seems like that it was like by divine order at just the right time, God made it happen. It wasn't something that was planned or forced or faked or trying to stir up the holy spirit or make something happen like a pep rally or, or trying to you know plan we got to have this moment when it really seems like the spirit moved in the service but yet every week it happens right at 9:13 there it goes the lady saying it again you know no he's saying that that just in this harmonious beautiful way God who's a god of order and authority in this harmonious beautiful way at the right moment it's not awkward it's not disruptive, it's not chaotic, it's just like, wow, man, that, that was just a word from heaven or that was just you know what was prayed in that moment. It just so beautifully fits together. And again, so valuable are these instructions. Look, let me say, as we kind of conclude this evening, in light of this biblical text, 1 Corinthians 14 and others, as well as you know many years of pastoral experience, that's one of the reasons why, We discourage in main worship gatherings people exercising the gift of tongues or prophetic words in the midst of a main worship assembly, a larger group, a Sunday morning service, these kind of things, because we have a set order to what we're doing in those times. And believe the Spirit of the Lord is directing, and we don't want things to be unorderly or not edifying, and a lot of times it just wouldn't be very practical or loving in those settings. It would be often more disruptive and sometimes even confusing. Again, keep in mind, in a larger gathering, the challenge is is you could be from one side of the room to the other, and then you can't hear what somebody's saying. And so therefore, well, what did they say? And, and then this confusion and awkwardness and uncomfortable, and, and, and the dynamic gets diminished. As well as the fact that, look, let's take, for example, a, you know, a corporate worship meeting on a Sunday morning or something of that nature. Okay? In those occasions, you may have very mature believers there, but you also may have present unbelievers, unconverted people. You may have people who are uninformed. Maybe they've never even learned about the gifts of the Spirit yet. And so certain things to them would be maybe awkward or uncomfortable. Well, if we're supposed to pursue love over everything else, it may not be the most loving setting to just inflict that upon other people in that moment. Because that may stumble them and they may be awkward and never want to come back to church. And that's not wise or loving or healthy at all. As well as the fact, I will tell you this from personal experience, You also cannot ever be certain who is in your gathering and who is in your midst in a larger assembly. And if you go and open a meeting up to being, you know, waiting on the Lord and allowing the gifts of the Spirit to be exercised and you don't know who is present, you have no idea who you're opening up a platform to. And somebody who's just looking for a stage or wants an opportunity to do their little thing. or their, Look, sometimes people do that kind of stuff when you don't even give them the opportunity. And I, for 20 years I've been in senior pastoral ministry. I've had the flag wavers, had the people who come forward and they sit in the front row and then they lay prostrate on the floor up against the stage during the word. And you're thinking, what of all if you want to lay prostrate during the worship meeting, why do you choose to sit in the front row? Go lay in the back. Behind the very back row if you really feel led of the Lord to do that. But again, you just never know who you're opening that meeting up to and look, we don't want the focus to be taken off of Jesus. We want to honor the Lord. We want to do, out of love, what's the most edifying for the body of Christ so that everybody's strengthened and built up and they're mutually benefited in the times we come together, not like, wow, that was weird this morning, wasn't it? And then that's the whole focal point. Or that, that person's acting awkward. What do we do with that? Or, and then all of a sudden, all the attention is off of what the Lord wanted to accomplish, and it's, it's on other things. That's why I think that typically, from what I see in the teaching of this chapter and other places, that these type of things are good occasions to happen in small settings of believers, in a believers meeting or an afterglow type meeting where you genuinely tell believers, look, hey, we are going to assemble for this time and we're just going to wait on the Lord. And if you're open to the gifts of the Spirit, you believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and you want to participate and come and just worship and wait on the Lord, hey, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Or in a setting where maybe it's just a smaller gathering where, uh, again, y- y- you can tell by facial recognition, hey, these are all mature believers. I know this one and Bob and Frank and Sally and Sue. And I, these are all believers with me. And so you know what? Okay. Hey, I know nobody in this room is cuckoo mature as far as I know. You see what I'm saying? So, okay, Lord, we can we can kind of wait on you here. But I think we just need to use wisdom because, again, we want to honor the Lord And we don't want to allow the enemy to intervene in the midst of what the Lord wants to do or just the weakness of our human flesh cause disruptions. We want to let all things be done. Open to the Spirit, but in decency and in order in such a way that it blesses the Lord and those involved. Let's stand together.